Welcome to the 50th episode of the 12th House Podcast. I can't believe it. So happy that you're here. Thank you for tuning in. And thanks for subscribing to the 12th House. I'm Michelle, the head rich in charge of holisticism. We started this podcast in October of 2020 as a way to sort of pull the curtain back on the areas of wellness and well-being and mysticism and magic and intuitive business that we felt like didn't get talked about enough and didn't get a light shined on them. And you know, like those kind of awkward conversations that don't often happen in real life that happen like behind closed doors or in boardrooms or over drinks or whatever. And I'm just blown away with by how many people wanted to have those conversations with us. So thank you for tuning in. Thanks for being part of this and, and listening. Thanks for subscribing and rating and reviewing and sharing it with your friends and sharing it on Instagram and letting us know what episodes you loved and also telling us which ones you didn't like. It is so meaningful to us. This is really a labor of love. And I have to give props to Wallace, who is just like such a G on our team, our head of content, who this has been her brainchild. And I'm so delighted that I just get to have fun and record it. And she is the genius behind all the moves. So big ups to Wallace for being a boss, <laughs> a boss babe. No, just kidding. And and thank you so much for listening. I am so grateful. Truly, we have a, enough downloads that we're in the top 1% of podcasts, which blows my mind. And I just think that's really cool. So thank you. And we're doing a giveaway because we're just so excited about it. So for our 50th episode giveaway, you can win a reading with me. You can win an Akashic Records reading with me. And maybe that will be exciting to you. I do not offer Akashic Records reading or actually any one-on-one work, period, outside of what I offer to my students. So people who are either in the North Node or in classes with me, it's not something that I do or I'm just... I'm busy with my students, so I don't take on new people typically. So you won't be able to book a session with me, unfortunately, outside of this. But if you want to win a free session, which is very rare, here's how you enter. You just write a review, make sure you're subscribed to the 12th House podcast, and then send us a text at the number in our show notes, and you will be entered to win. The last day to enter will be the last day of May, so May 31st, and we'll select a winner on June 1st. So may the most lucky person win. (laughs) I can't wait to read for you. It's going to be fun. Oh my gosh. I love today's episode. It's so good. And oh, oh, and one more thing. If you subscribe to this podcast, it seriously makes a huge difference for us. It makes a huge difference in like how many people find us and where we show up on the charts. And that helps us get even cooler guests and that's great. We want just like cool, awesome, dope people. We want to continue to have really robust conversations with people who you love and who you think are really cool. And not just like the people on the podcast circuit that are so boring that if I like literally hear another conversation about manifestation, I'm going to poke my own eyes out. But yeah. So thank you. When you subscribe, that makes a really big difference. So if you could just take a second and go ahead and make sure you're subscribed to the podcast or you're following it on Spotify or on Apple We love that. We're so grateful. Plus, like if we put out extra podcasts, which we often do, you'll get notified of them. You won't miss anything that's like really cool or exciting. So you want to be an insider. Trust me. Ah, Today's episode is so fun. Some of you know that my background before I started holisticism was in tech and I talk about it a lot. It's why I love intuitive business because I learned a lot about business working in tech and from a sort of atypical perspective or not business school background. And I also learned a lot about what I didn't want in a business and what I didn't want to like sort of perpetuate starting my business by working in tech. And today's guest, Johanna Renath, is also a tech nerd who bridges the gap between mysticism and magic and personal development and wellness and technology. And I am so happy that we got to have her on the podcast today. We talk all about venture capital and raising money. And I think that VC you know, we talk a lot about intuitive business here at Holisticism and on the 12th House podcast. And sometimes I talk about getting, raising venture money, but it is a beast. And I remember when I first started raising capital, I felt like I was speaking a foreign language that like only the upper echelons of society knew and that there were all these weird rules. Honestly, okay, like when when Meghan Markle talks about like being involved with the royal family or like when you read about Princess Diana and like how she, there were all these rules that she didn't know about and like typical, I don't know, like what's what's appropriate because like no one tells you how to do this stuff, like do princess stuff. 
that's like what it felt like when I started raising money. There were all these unspoken rules and like ways of being and interacting and conversations and even like turns of phrase that people used by people. I mean like white men mostly that like I didn't know and like I couldn't Google and I couldn't like read a Medium article about it. And I mentioned briefly in this episode how I actually had like a running list when I started taking meetings of what I wore, how I, and how I dressed because it was actually like a notion document or Google spreadsheet. I think it was Google spreadsheet at that time of like, did I wear makeup? How did I wear my hair? What was I wearing? Was I wearing a dress or pants or a pantsuit or a onesie or something else? And was I wearing flats or heels or actually sneakers? And the combination, like seeing what combination of my exterior actually helped me raise more money. And interestingly enough, my outside appearance made a really big difference when it came to raising money. There are lots of, there of course are lots of factors when it comes to getting investors, but I noticed, or I don't know, man, I don't know if it's causation or correlation, but I saw a definite uptick in the number of people who wanted to invest in me when I dressed in a particular way, which I talk about in this episode, but it took me so, this learning curve is so steep. And the thing is like, with these gated spaces, with these spaces where there are gatekeepers, it's really hard to break in. And that's why there's only, you know, only 6% of venture capital or 2% of venture capital goes to women. And only like 6% of VCs are women. And only like, you know, 0.02% of VC goes to black women. And it's because I think there's a lot of gatekeeping that happens. We talk about it in this episode. And I don't think that if you are curious about raising money, because it is it definitely opens up your world when you start to consider what it might be like to run a business if you had $10 million to fuck around with. If you had even a million dollars to fuck around with, even $500,000 that someone else is is investing in you. So you don't have to make that money and be a revenue positive business or a profitable business in order to grow. And there are very different, and we talk about this in this episode, but there are different types of businesses, right? There are lifestyle businesses, which is a type of business that you can, it's a typical business. Like most people have lifestyle businesses. We talk about it a little bit more in this episode, but it's something that you can run and that's self-sustaining and can help, you know, kind of grow at a significant pace, like an upward pace, but you're not like, it's not running at a breakneck speed. And then there are venture backable businesses. And these are the types of businesses that grow exponentially month over month over month. And they usually require a lot of capital upfront to do that because they are typically businesses that are, you either need really robust technology or they're things like, I don't know, SpaceX or Tesla or businesses like CPG or direct to consumer businesses. So consumer product goods, services, businesses, I should say, that require a lot of capital in order to make a ton of product and like blast it into the market with a ton of marketing. Allbirds is a good example or Glossy is a good example. And these types of venture backable businesses are really interesting and not everyone has to run them. But I think it's a really cool thought exercise to just explore what would it be like if I take this business that I'm working on right now and I made it a venture backable business? What would need to change? What would need to evolve? How would I look at this problem that I'm trying to solve differently? I know that that's what happened to me when I started Holisticism. I started it as a business that I was bootstrapping myself. That was just like me on my off hours, you know, from four to nine in the morning. And then someone gave me the idea that I should raise, I should make this a tech product and I should raise money. And then I did. And I really explored that for about a year and decided that that actually really was not, did not feel good in my body, was not the direction I wanted to go in. And so then sort of took a U-turn back to a lifestyle business. And now we have this beautiful lifestyle business that we're able to support lots of people with. And yeah, and I think that's really cool. And I was able to just think in a different way. And I don't know if I would be in the same space with holisticism if I hadn't thought about it being venture backable at some point, because it definitely changed the way that I interact with what we do and what we make and also just how I work. So anyways, this is a long intro, but it's why I wanted to talk with Yana about VC and just to kind of demystify it, just a tidbit. And we really don't go in super, super detail here. But if you are curious, we're so excited to like record another podcast episode and talk about this. So let me know if you like it. If you're like boring, that's fine too. We'll never do it again. But I think you're going to like it. I really do. I think you're going to like it. Even if you're not, 
even if you're not thinking about starting a business, because so many of the companies that you support, many of them are venture backed and there's a, it's a totally different ball game. It is a totally different beast than a small business that has, you know, a solopreneur or a small team behind it. One is not better than the other, but there are definitely different factors at play and different energies behind them. And this is part of why we started the cusp too, because we wanted to shine a light on those things and, you know, reveal that your favorite, what seems like small probiotic company is actually a $40 million, $100 million invested, you know, venture-backed company. And that really changes how we interact with things. So anyways, I hope that you enjoy this episode. I can't wait to hear what you think. Let me know. And oh, good luck for all who submit their reviews for an Akashic Records reading. I can't wait to announce the winner. All right, that's it. And here's the episode. Hi, Joanna. Hi, Michelle. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so happy to be talking to you. We've been bonding over the internet over lots of things from mysticism to venture capital to technology to magic and more. Yeah. <laughs> it's been it's been a very broad conversation. It really has. <laughs> I love that though. You contain multitudes and like that's sure. that's my type of person. So we <laughs> you and I have been talking for a while about VC because mm-hmm. we both have our, our very unique experiences with venture capital and you know at holisticism and on the 12th house, we, our goal is to pull the curtain back on the things that often go unseen and Mm -hmm. that really feel gatekept. Right. And I think so much of the wellness and well-being space, it has gatekeepers. And so I would argue, Mm -hmm. so does a lot of like mysticism and magic. And another huge area Mm -hmm. that uh, there's a lot of gatekeeping that happens is when it comes to finances and capitalization, especially for people who are looking to raise money for their businesses. And I remember when I first started Holisticism, I had worked for tech companies before, but when I first started my company, I was like, how the fuck do people have money to start companies? Like now I get why people raise money because it's so expensive. And how do you even get started? And I've learned so much in the last few years and I'm still learning all the time. But how did you, what was your entry into the venture capital space? Right. So I I was a founder before too. At some point, you know, I, I got really interested in venture capital because I realized there's, when you look to startup media and when you look to sort of the conversation that happens around startups, there's always this thing that was really, I just didn't quite understand. It's like, oh, so-and-so has raised so much money. And their valuation now is a billion, their unicorn. It's like, huh, this is interesting, right? How does one mm-hmm. become a unicorn? And there was, you know, at the time I thought, you know what, that's actually kind of interesting job. You look for the companies of the future and you give them money. Like what? That's a thing. Oh yeah. It's like a dream job. <laughs> yeah. Right. It, it sounds from the outside. It sounds like a really cool job. And so I applied to be a part of a venture capital diversity program and you know, as weird as it sounds that as a white woman, you're still a, a very diverse candidate for venture capital. It's a very, it has a, a quite the monoculture, I would say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we don't really see a lot of people who are not, you know, white upper class males in this job. And I got in and I learned how to do VC from VCs over the course of a year, which was a wild experience. (laughs) I'm shaking my head because I bet that was insane. I mean, it's like you totally Trojan horsed it. You like (laughs) learn from the inside. (laughs) A little, a little. And I mean, to give some context here on my background too. So I went to school for, I mean, a lot of things because I'm a very curious person, but I went to school for political science and for anthropology for a while and I have a, a certificate in photography and I wanted to be a photojournalist for quite a while and then I was in the art world for a little bit so for me my pivot into entrepreneurship was I mean there's some family history with that but it was definitely not up my alley and I got my MBA quite a while after that so I was I was like oh let's see how this works <laughs> <laughs> so it was, you know, I was quite wide-eyed and just, you know, I think it was it was actually a bit of an anthropological pursuit to just sort of see what that world is like. I was going to ask, was, why did why did you want to get into business after mm-hmm. being an artist and sort of being in yeah. the, it sounds like being in the business of like helping people, what made business attractive to you? <laughs> I, well, that's a, 
That is such a good question. I love it. I realized early on, I co-founded a business with a family member when I was 20 and I had it for Mm. a couple of years. And you know, when you're young, you, you want to do your own thing, right? And I always had this, I guess, very empathetic element to me. And I, I always felt that sort of traditional business. And when you looked at sort of, you know, I, I also did like a secondary degree program in economics because I really wanted to <laughs> torture myself. Wow. <laughs> so I took a couple of business classes and I, through that. And I was always like, oh, what, what the fuck is going on here? Like none of this revenue, it's, it's only... You know, it's only about status and money, which, mm. you know, to be fair to the people in, in those programs, it's not just about that, but that was sort of the projection that I saw or that, you know, was mirrored back to me. And so for a while I was like, you know, fuck this. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to do anything with business. I want to do something that has meaning to me and that sort of improves the world in one way or the other. And I've always liked creativity, I guess. So I went way the other way, mm. <laughs> as far away as I could. And then in the end, you know, I was interning at galleries and I realized, you know, art is a business. So I went full yeah. circle on that and realized like, oh shit, um, you, you, to be an artist. And I think you also know this with your background in dance, like to be an artist is, is definitely great in many ways. I like that. I went to school for photography for a while and at the same time you got to live, right? So figuring out the business of art, as much as it was unexpected to me and figuring out the business of being a gallerist mm. was sort of what pivoted me back into this career, I would say, where I was like, oh, interesting. Like this is this is a very common denominator. You gotta figure out, I think for everything where you're heading out on your own path and it is sort of an economic activity, you have to figure out how to do it. So unwittingly you create a business, right? If you're a wellness practitioner, <laughs> you might like your craft, but then accidentally you're like, oh shit, I'm, I'm a business owner now. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's sort of where my interest came from. And then when I, when I started talking to founders a lot, you know, and through this VC experience also, I realized actually that there's something at the core that sort of connects art and business, which is, you know, I would say in the beginning stages, when you're talking about ideas, right? A founder or an artist, you both have ideas and then you sort of figure out how to bring the ideas into reality. And then of course, those ideas then take wildly different paths. But to me, that idea stage was always the most interesting. That's sort of what what brought me into business. Thank you for sharing all that. I think that you're (laughs) spot on, like innovators and visionaries exist across platforms and mediums. And I think anyone who is creating something new or sees a new potential world, right? Whether it's the world Mm -hmm. with through this lens of art or the world with through the lens of a new product or a service or a company or business that could change the way that we do what we do. It's the same sort of thread. Also like that rebel archetype I find so often and so consistently in the art world and in I would say like not just the world of business, but the micro world of technologists and like startup founders. It's so funny when you were saying that I had this repressed memory come up out of my brain of when I was touring colleges, when I was about to go to school. Mm-hmm. And I went to art school. I went to school for dance. And I remember walking into one school I was visiting into the business school. And I was like, oh my God, this is, it's so boring in here. Like I want to fall asleep just being in this room. Like everyone was wearing suits, you know, just like a bunch of yeah. 19 year olds in suits. And you're like, why are you wearing a suit to class? It's so weird. I've seen that too. And, and now I'm like, oh my God, I'm obsessed with the, I love learning about business. And I think it's so interesting, but you if you told me when I was 17 that this is what I'd be doing, I'd be like, oh my God, poor future me. She's really lost her soul. But they really are. You're right. Like artists and creatives, you have to have some sort of business acumen in order to make that impact on the world that you're here to make. You need to, some people call it hustle. Others would call it like, I don't know, I guess like social skills. If you're able to ask people for money or ask people to patronize you, but either way, that's business. I don't think people always connect those two things. Yeah, I would agree. And what you were saying about, (laughs) I mean, there is a certain, I think when I was younger, I saw that there was a certain archetype in business and that was what really turned me off from that path. Even though I guess this sort of, especially when you're an early stage entrepreneur, when you've started something, it's so interesting because you have, you're working on 
so many different things at the same time, right? You have, you're managing people, you're building your product, then you're doing marketing, you're doing sales. Like you have to have a really, and I think having that broad skill set is very, I don't think there's a person who has it all. You can definitely train yourself to, you know, to build your skills in certain areas. But in the beginning, it's really, it's a wild ride, right? Because there's, you're covering so much. And then as the business grows, you're sort of outsourced, you're starting to outsource or hand over the reins in, in some of these departments, but it's really, it's really interesting. And at the same time, because there's this sort of story that we see or see that's being told around business, it's such a turnoff for people who don't, who don't identify with that. Like I had one of the I was in in the VC fellowship with, she always said, it's like, oh, you know, I never wanted to go into business because all of those people are so boring and gray. And <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, I, I, I feel that. I feel that very much. And, and I try to, to do it a bit differently, especially, you know, as a coach working with founders to also give them permission or help them give themselves permission to be themselves actually. Right. I, I mean, I can, I can share this one like little anecdote. There's, so this is, it was Easter this past weekend and here in Germany where I am, it's, it's a bit of a thing. Like you get, you know, the Easter bunny brings you stuff and there's in the town I'm in, there's a, a vintage store owner and we, we go back all the way <laughs> and it just Aww. happened to be that he had a Playmobil castle. <laughs> I know you I see your eyes. Wow. Yeah. And it, it just so happened that on my way home from the market on Saturday, he was like, well, this is sitting around. Do you want it? And obviously, I mean, I was fucking thrilled. It's three stories. It's pink. It has, it has like, <laughs> like it has yeah. on it and a peacock throne, right? Of course you want it. And, but my point with this is I think you can do both, right? You can have this sort of childlike enthusiasm for life where you can do these things that are a bit like counterintuitive like right why would when whenever would a founder tell a story about doing that or just getting enthused about it but we we can be both things we can be really good at what we do at work and we can still have that sort of you know maybe a bit weird creative wild streak to us and that it shouldn't just be this I don't know. I'm I'm really not in, in favor of like this image of, you know, you, you've got to do business a certain way. And then if mm. you don't, it sucks to be you. <laughs> yeah. And I think on that note, the VC world is mm-hmm. so used to pattern matching is something you hear so often, right? I think I don't remember what the stat is. I know when I was fundraising, I'm pretty sure the stat was that 6% of venture capital went to female founders and like 0.08% or 0.8% went to black female founders mm-hmm. and the rest went to white men. <laughs> That's all. It's like billions of dollars going to white men and a marginal amount going to anyone else who doesn't fall under that category. And mm-hmm. I remember when I was fundraising, reading so many articles and books and talking to so many white men who were like, yeah, just be yourself, just be yourself, you know, just like walk in there and be casual. And I was like, no, because being myself is completely different than who you are. And Mm -hmm. the term pattern matching in Silicon Valley and for investors typically means, well, who are the people who have done really, really well in this space? Who Mm -hmm. are the Mark Zuckerbergs? All right. What do they look like? What do they sound like? What do they act like? What, how do they dress? Mm -hmm. Okay. Look for people like that because they probably will lead you to an outcome that's similar to, I don't know, those past outcomes. So there's this archetype or trope of the startup male startup founder who's, I would say like not the most socially adept person. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Wearing some like Patagonia or like a white, a gray t-shirt and jeans. (laughs) Who's like obsessed with coding, right? Who's like technical and sort of wonderkind, you know, who wants to have a startup office that has air hockey tables and beer <laughs> on tap. And if you don't fit that pattern, it's almost mm-hmm. as if you, you like, it's not that you're breaking the mold. It's just that it doesn't compute almost with a lot yeah. of venture capitalists. Yeah. So I'm so curious is it's clear mm-hmm. that the VC that you worked with, like mm-hmm. they're different period from most VCs because they were looking for people like you to be in their fellowship. 
Yeah, in, in some ways, but we can we can also. I'm not sure how how well the pods audience is like in tune with what we see is and why the fuck they should even care. Yeah, let's talk about lifestyle the, versus venture capital. Yeah, exactly. When I started doing this fellowship, I was like, hmm, you know, this is all interesting. But when they first started explaining sort of the model behind it and the financial model, I was like, oh this is very interesting, right? And yeah. It's something that, yeah, it's out there on the internet. You can Google it. But then especially I think when you're someone who's not business or like hardcore finance inclined, you're not, you're not going to spend your free time Googling like what is venture capital and no. how does it work? So let's let's save the audience some time Googling. <laughs> yes, yes. So Yay. maybe we'll start with mm-hmm. venture capital. So mm-hmm. anyone who starts a business, needs to find capitalization or some sort of investment for their business. And there's lots of different ways to do that. There's not just one way. A lot of founders of small businesses bootstrap their business, meaning mm-hmm. that they they fund it themselves. That's how I started Holisticism. Mm-hmm. I was an, a consultant and I would take my money from consulting and I would put it into the, the Holisticism bank account. And I'd take like, you know, $700 a month for me. And then everything else would go to holisticism. Mm-hmm. And that's what traditional sort of bootstrapping is until you get into a place of profitability. And when mm-hmm. your business is profitable, your business is supporting itself. And that's mm-hmm. a really healthy place to be at. The next way you could you could fund your business would be through like a bank loan, right? Or mm-hmm. a loan from a family member, sort of like traditional financing. And those work really well for these options work well for lifestyle businesses or businesses that don't want to make exorbitant and exponential growth leaps in mm-hmm. the first, you know, one to maybe five years, I guess, of the business. Yeah. And there are some businesses that need capital is a lot of capitalization up front, a lot of financing, a lot of money up front in order mm-hmm. to do what they're here to do. And so those right. are businesses like, what would you say, Joanna? Like tech businesses. Tech businesses, especially when you think about, you know, let's say you want to program a platform and you need you need a developer to do it or you need a team of developers to do it just because it's it's not something that can be done easily. Or, you know, there are technologies like I would say typically sort of the biotech industry, you know, mm-hmm. where it's very intensive in terms of R&D, research right. and development, where you need capital up front because it's not something like how would you bootstrap cancer curing technology? Like that's pretty yeah. much not. Options. Right. So you either, couldn't do that. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Either, either you develop that in-house or sort of in a, in a joint venture with an established corporation. And if you want to go the startup route with that, you would need capital for that. Or if you want to build flying taxis, you need capital for that. That mm-hmm. also exists, by the way. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then some D2C direct to consumer companies mm-hmm. or consumer packaged goods companies that want to have mm-hmm. these sort of like giant splashy sort of taking over and disrupting to use a very popular word in VC, disrupting an entire industry model. Mm-hmm. So brands like that, that are good examples. So I would say Glossier is probably, I don't know if it's a good mm-hmm. example, but it's an example of a company that's a business, a brand that's direct to consumer and that raised a shit ton of money up front because they needed to like basically break how the makeup industry worked in order for their business to be this like global business that it is. Allbirds would be another example. Harry's Razors is another example. Mm-hmm. What are some other D2C examples that people might know? I think Warby Parker is oh, a good yeah, Warby, duh, totally. Warby Parker. Away. Away. <laughs> the Warby Parker of luggage. Yeah. yeah. There are so many now and, and it's, it's become more and more popular, I think, to see founders raising money or see people raising money in consumer facing brands. And a lot of tech brands are not, they're SaaS software, you know, they're B2B brands potentially Mm -hmm. or businesses. So they're not something that we as the general public are always in awareness of. But I would say that VC has gotten a lot more splashy as these more sort of like beautifully branded businesses have popped up. And maybe you can explain why, like how someone knows if they're a good fit for VC. 
Great. So I would say you touched upon this sort of the difference between a lifestyle business and a VC fundable business a bit earlier. And I think lifestyle business gets tossed around like it's a four letter word. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Totally. The lifestyle business, it's not interesting. But basically the difference is, I think the question is what role do you want the business to take in your life? If you have Mm -hmm. a business that you want to be profitable and you have a certain, you know, you want to be good financially, you want to have a chill life maybe you know have some extra cash or maybe quite a bit of extra cash to do your thing and to to have a certain lifestyle that you have in mind that's what's called a lifestyle business could have you know employees or could have a pretty big team it doesn't matter but it's still the idea is that it sort of satisfies a certain lifestyle need and then a vc business is really different because it's like as as you were saying earlier it comes with the idea of of really having an impact and taking over a certain market and this idea of disruption, for instance, right now in Europe, we're seeing the the disruption of the grocery getting experience mm. where grocery delivery startups are everywhere, also mm. because of the pandemic and people are just, we're still sitting at home. So, you know, yeah. all the sort of brands that cater to that, to that, or business models that cater to that are really sort of on the up and up. And a, a VC funded business here would be a business that really seeks to not just, so I would say the difference is if you're local to Berlin, for instance, and you have, you know, a small chain of corner shops or whatever, and you start offering delivery, that could be a lifestyle business. I know it's not a great example, but let's go with it. And then you have VC money and you're like, oh, we're going to take over Europe with our service and it's going to be everywhere. Take 25% of the grocery market share. That's, that's the difference in attitude between sort of a lifestyle business and a VC business. And Mm -hmm. So basically, if you want to go and get funding, you need to be aware that when you get VC funding, that growing, like having a big vision as your job, that's what the VC founder, the, the VC fund select for. And growth is your like is your number one priority because the way it works is the VC fund, they're getting money from other people. So that could be university endowments, it could be pension institutionals yeah Yeah. it could be wealthy individuals it could be a whole lot of people but those people are called limited partners and they give money to a vc fund it's like basically a huge pot of money and the vc fund then has to invest that according to an investment thesis they fund uh, they they formulate so for instance you could say i don't know the future of direct to consumer brands is in I don't know wearables. I'm that's not you know, my area of specialty, but we can we can pick up something. But that sounded and, really good. Honestly, it sounded like yeah. put printed <laughs> out. That could totally be a VC's yeah. investing philosophy. <laughs> well, well, Johanna Johanna VC is, is off to the <laughs> and so that's because a VC has to pitch. They have to get the money from somewhere, and then so you formulate this thesis wealthy people or endowments or institutions give you money and then according to this thesis you go and find startups to invest in but then the idea is because this is going to get a little bit financy but just to understand sort of how this works is mm-hmm. a vc for instance a university endowment or a wealthy individual they invest money in, in vc it's called venture capital so it's a high risk it's a high risk asset class which is sort of a mm-hmm. a term for NASA class is basically a, a type, different type of investment where you sort of bunker your money and hope that, you know, it has some sort of return. And venture capital is high risk. So that means mm-hmm. high risk of losing the money, but also high, Upside. if it returns, then it has high returns. Mm-hmm. And so usually when institution gives money to a VC, the expectation generally is that a good fund returns 3x. So if you collect 100 million to manage, then the idea kind of is that you manage it in a way that after about seven to 10 years, you can return 300 million. Now, when you look to sort of the dumpster fire that some startups are and how quickly they fail, you know, up to 90% of startups fail in their first year, you can sort of see how tricky and how wonky the math gets at some point, because when you have 100 million and you invest you know, in 10 startups and nine fail, you're left with 10 million of your initial pot. And those 10 million have to now return not just the hundred, but your investors, your LPs want to see money. So mm-hmm. you're going to have to figure out how this one investment can make 200 or 300 million. And when you, when you really think about what that means for the startup is the startup, they have to hustle, like they have to hustle hard so that that's happening basically. So the, 
why I'm telling where I'm telling this like a long-winded story about like how finance works, I guess, is because the the reality of having a VC funded business is really closely tied to that. You get money yes. and the idea is that you receive or you get to a certain valuation or you get to, you know, the only way basically you can make money off of that investment is when either you sell to bigger company mm-hmm. or you go and have an IPO like Bumble just did, for example. Right. I'm so so I'm glad yeah. you said that because I want to just put a pin in that really quickly mm-hmm. because that I think is also really important for people to understand is if you have a lifestyle business, your business can continue and be profitable yeah. for 25 to 30 years, right? Or beyond you, right? For a hundred years, if, if you really wanted it. The outcome for someone who owns a, a lifestyle business and usually you also retain a large percentage of your owner's pot, right? Because you run that business, you own 100% of it typically, unless you give some of it to your employees or to other outside investors or to co-founders. But mm-hmm. you are making money because your your business is profitable. Mm-hmm. And that's how you get your salary. It's how you get paid. Or... Yeah. You could also potentially maybe get acquired by another business. You could sell to somebody else. There are some other ways for you to get out of the business if you want to and potentially get a payday. But typically the way that you get paid in a lifestyle business is your business is profitable. The way that you get paid typically with a VC sort of backed and funded business is through either an acquisition or an IPO Mm -hmm. because that is when you start making. And typically, I mean, how... You would know better than I, but there are so many companies that are not profitable that are technically (laughs) unicorns because they have a valuation of over a billion dollars. But the reason that they're valued at over a billion dollars is because people have invested hundreds of millions of dollars into them. So it's kind of like their potential really is that they could earn billions of dollars, but they are not like in fact many of them are not even cash flow positive meaning that they're not pulling in enough revenue to make a profit and so the way they're able to run their businesses is that they keep getting financing rounds and raising more and more money from mm-hmm. investors and then eventually they either get acquired or they do become profitable and they IPO did i fuck that up too much no you you explained it perfectly and i'm so glad okay. you brought this up because it's it's when we look at when we look at business, I think the practical implications of those of that is when you look to a you know lifestyle business, cell phone business, whatever, you really it's a long view, right? You can mm-hmm. you own, let's say, you know, you started maybe at some point you you know you take a little money from someone, I don't know, like five percent or something, because you had you wanted to buy a bigger machine or whatever. Yeah. But you can do that and you can still sort of a contain control over your business because you know the number of shares of the company you have also impact your voting rights when mm-hmm. you take more and more people through raising capital. But the other thing is also And your voting rights are things that like people can when you we know this stuff so well because we're fluent in it, but I want to make sure that people who are listening understand. So like voting rights are things like if you have a board you will have a board. That's what happens when you get investors and they're able to make decisions about your business. Even though you you're the founder and the CEO, your board can either support you or not support you and make decisions about how the business runs. So a good example would be WeWork had a board, right? They had a founder, Adam <laughs> Newman and CEO. <laughs> Didn't go super well for yeah. him. And the board, because he was basically like a maniac, they decided to oust him from the business. So even though that was his business that he he owned and he retains ownership over, mm-hmm. he cannot work there anymore because of the board. So you're when you give away parts of your company, which is what you're doing in, in exchange for venture capital, you're giving away shares, you're giving away board seats, you're also giving away ownership and control. Exactly. Yeah. And I think this is this is something we're digressing for a second here, but I think <laughs> it's really important to understand because a lot of people start businesses because they can't stand being told what to do or they want to do, they want to do <laughs> yes. their own thing going back to the sort of rebel archetype that we were we were talking raising about. raising my hand here like that is a hundred percent me like don't, please don't don't not even please just don't fucking tell me what to do like that's exactly. it <laughs> yeah. and then all of a sudden you raise VC money and you're like oh cool now I can build my dream and it's going to be awesome but oh well you now have a board and you have board meetings and you have you know, when someone has a, a 10% or even a 20, you know, when you have 25% of your capital or your 
because the, the ownership goes sort of in the valuation rounds and a VC buys, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is different financing instruments, but just for simplicity of, yeah. of the, you know, a VC gives, I don't know, a million for 10% and then the company's worth 10 million. That's how it works. Mm-hmm. And the more the, the more founding rounds you do, the, the smaller your stake gets as a founder. And all of a sudden you find yourself in the situation where, you know, you don't control 50% of your company anymore. And then at some point, maybe you have 25% or 10%. And then, you know, all of a sudden you don't mm-hmm. have just one boss. You have a whole lot of bosses who are now mm-hmm. discussing with you what you want to do in your company that you built with your team, right? And that's, that is, I think, something to, especially people like you and I, I would say, and maybe probably many people listening who want to do their own thing and who want to do it on their own terms and maybe on their own values, this is really challenging because you there's not a good way out of it. And mm. of course, the investors have an interest in keeping you on the, you know in the company and it doesn't always have to be like mayhem and fighting and everything, but it's it's the interest shift, right? You're not the sole person in control of what's going on. And even, you know, even if you're a lifestyle business owner, you you still have a team to coordinate with. It's not like you get to be a dictator in the company. <laughs> you shouldn't be. Right. Because I think we're way beyond that now. <sighs> yeah, at least that's my vision for it. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> But at least there's this sort of dynamic between you and the team and maybe if there's a co-founder, but when you have VCs or investors, you have a whole other layer of bosses and people you're responsible to who want to know, you know, where the fuck the growth rates are and like Mm -hmm. why things aren't going the way they need to go to have a successful IPO. And the big thing about this whole business around IPOs and and, and VC in general, it's the timeframe for VC, a VC funded business is sort of seven to 10 years. Like you need to you need to get to an IPO or a sale between seven and 10 years. So you already see sort of that this it's high growth. There's actually mm-hmm. a book about this called blitz scaling. That's sort of, <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's that's by sort of, Reed Hoffman. You should read it if you're curious about this stuff, but yeah, it's, yeah. It's if read. you want to, if you want to understand, I guess how this works and why the world is the way it is, and why, you know, Airbnb is a blitz-scaled company, for instance, why things are the way they are. It's a good book to read, but it's also highly frustrating. Um, <laughs> right. It's very dysregulating, I will say yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, would, I would agree. And the idea really is to have, when you have an idea and once you have product market fit, so you see, you know, people responding to this, you know, booking holiday apartments online and rooms is a good idea. Then you pour money into this thing and make it grow as fast as you can. And as Michelle said... Well, I don't really need to talk to you about first person, right? But I feel like there's the audience <laughs> sitting there. <laughs> but as you, as you said, I guess the arbiter of quality of the company or whether it's a good company is is not whether is this thing profitable or do we have cash flow? It's really just like, is it growing? And mm-hmm. I find, you know, considering sort of where we are societally, where we are in terms of the climate, those are very... I don't think it's a bad model for everyone. You know, certain companies require upfront investment, but it's, I would be very discerning about whether I would want that or not, because your business has, takes a different role in your life when you do that, right? You can't mm-hmm. just go home at six and be like, oh, you know, I'm yeah. done for the day. Nah, I've heard, mm-hmm. I've heard from VCs that I was in the room with that they go and check. Some VCs actually go and check or they were, pre- yeah, they were, I know. Whoa. I'm, that was pretty early into the fellowship and I, you know, I was, privy to a conversation where VC said, you know, we we want founders who really hustle and we sometimes go to the offices after 6 p.m. and we see if someone's there. And if nobody's there and they've gone home, this is a bad sign for us. Whoa. Yeah, I know. And so it, that doesn't mean that all VCs are like that, but just to to really clarify the expectations here. So if you if you take VC, then you need to be aware that that's gonna that is the expectation. And Getting out of VC is very tricky. Like once you're on that path. It's not, it's, I would argue it's nearly impossible unless you are, because yeah, I mean, how would you get out of it? The only ways I've I've seen are when people basically throw their hands up and have a sort of mea culpa and are like, we're not going to be able to match these growth numbers. And that's a wash for the VC. They've basically given someone millions of dollars and you don't, by the way, you don't have to pay the money back. 
Like, no, I think you, that that's something yeah. that we we didn't cover. You don't have to pay <laughs> the money back. Like when someone invests in the, in the business, because they're not investing in you. You're not, it's not an LLC or it's not a sole proprietorship. It's a corporation. So the corporation just sort of folds or gets acquired or acquired or something like that. And you, the VC takes it at a loss and they write it off and whatever. They know, like Johanna said, the likelihood of success is very low, but mm. also the upside is super high because the likelihood of success is so low. So that's expected to have some failures, but yeah, you can't really, unless you have a lot of money to buy back your shares of the business that you've already sold off to people in mm. exchange for investment, it's really hard to get out of venture capital funding for your business. Yeah, exactly. And there are you know, now slowly, you know, and, and some VCs, you know, are different than others, but in general, well, there, there now are a couple of models that are a bit different, right? That support bootstrapping, bootstrapping founders, or, you know, there's also the strategy when your company has been going well for a little while and you're like, you know what, this is going really well. We know what works. We want, you know, instead of a bank loan, we just sell, I don't know, 10% for X mm-hmm. money. We're going to use that to grow, I don't know, from the States to the European market or something, right? When you do it in a very calculated way, I think it's a good thing, but where I, you know, as a former founder and former VC fellow now turned exec coach, where I get very hesitant or get, you know, a sort of this uncomfortable knot in my stomach is when I see all these reports of like, oh, so-and-so has raised this much money and, you know, oh, another round for, I don't know, XYZ company. Cause it's, it presents it like that's the only way to do it. And I see a lot of founders fall into this, I don't want to call it a trap, but maybe it's very tempting to say, oh, you know what, you know, I need the money and I get that, right? Mm -hmm. Not all of us have, you know, situations like you and I, where we have consulting gigs and you can sort of pour money into, into a different sort of situation, but still it's very tempting to just say, oh, you know, I'll raise VC money. It's cool. Like everyone's doing it. And it, sometimes I think it also feels like validation for founders, like, oh, someone's giving money to this idea, so it's got to be a good idea. Mm-hmm. And I would say those are not good reasons to do it. That, if, that, <laughs> if that comes up, I would really you know, if, if you're doing it for ex- external validation, I'd say definitely mm, yeah. look elsewhere, <laughs> maybe. Also, like I think people underestimate, it is easy for some people to raise money. I knew mm. men when I was raising my round. <laughs> I haven't even talked who, about that yet. Yeah. yeah, I knew men who mm. would send out a text to five people mm-hmm. and they were able to raise $1.5 million in a week just mm-hmm. without, with like, I've got this idea for this jelly bean that has caffeine in it. And their friend, because they, you know, like that's a made up thing, but you know, because they- I wouldn't be surprised. Like, I honestly, surprised. yeah, seriously, that's my IP now. No one can take that. Yeah, like- because they had, because they were men often, because they had connections and they'd prove, probably proven themselves in the industry in some way, right? They'd either started another business or been operators before. Mm-hmm. They were able to raise money really quickly and without jumping through a lot of hoops. If you're a first time founder, if you've never sold a business, if you've never worked in tech, if you've never worked in venture, it's going to be a lot harder for you to raise money. Yeah. You're going to have to take hundreds of meetings. You're going to have to figure out how to get those meetings with people, which is certainly not easy. And yeah. you're going to have to show enough traction that people will want to invest in you. And it is completely a game. It is a game. There is a playbook. There's rules. There are, it's like, it's like walking into some strange social interaction. Like whenever mm-hmm. I see this stuff about Meghan Markle, in like the <laughs> the queen and all the weird things that they have to do that are like, you know, this is tradition. And she's like, what the fuck are you talking about? That's how I felt when I was raising money. It's like I had people I who I was really privileged to know sit down and tell me, this is how you play this game. And mm-hmm. I never would have played the game that way myself. I never mm-hmm. would have known that's what I needed to do in order to raise money. And when I did raise the money and I had this come to Jesus moment where I was like crying in my kitchen with my partner and I was like, I don't want to run this business the way that all these people want me to run it. And I don't want to not spend my life with, with you, with my partner. I want to have a business of course, but I don't want to, I don't want to give up my life to do it, which is kind Mm -hmm. of what you have to do when you, what you've already spoken to Anna about, you have Mm -hmm. to like hustle and work 
16 hour days and weekends and just like basically front load all of that work so that you can eventually get acquired. And that was not a generative to me life. That wasn't what I wanted for my life and my work. Yeah. Can I ask you something? How, how, or if you want to talk about it, how, or when, when was the moment you realized it and how did you feel? That I didn't want to raise money. Yeah. That you didn't, you didn't want it to be like that. I had lots of micro moments throughout it. I think like I have so many horror stories and (laughs) unfortunately, Mm -hmm. I think that the, it always grossed me out, you Mm -hmm. know? And when I first started raising money, I wanted to raise an all female round. I I only wanted women LPs and so only female investors on my balance sheet and my cap table. And I told someone that and they were like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Why would you turn away good money from men? Like men aren't bad. It was like, it's kind of like the principle of the thing, you know, like that's, it's so, 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 so rare to have female investors. So Mm -hmm. to have all female investors on a cap table or women investors, investors on a cap table is, I don't know if there's anyone out there who's done that because it's really challenging. And typically you take what you can get when you're raising money. So you Mm-hmm. And that means a lot of the time that you're sacrificing because you may not align with the people who want to invest in you, but you mm-hmm. again are trying to take what you can get. You don't have a lot of leverage, especially as a first time founder. So that was like a big red flag that I, that started off my journey. And then I remember sitting at, I was in a, I was doing a trip to New York where I met with like probably 10 people over two days. And I was like running around Manhattan, taking meetings and I sat down with an investor who just looked at my boobs the whole time and told me that, and I'm like, you know, I'm a humble B cup, so it wasn't even really that impressive. And he was like, well, you don't look like you're from San Francisco. And I was like, I'm not, I'm from LA actually. And the whole interaction was so degrading and demoralizing. And I just felt like, wow, this is Like, this is not what I, I don't want to be in these rooms. I don't want to have to prove myself anymore. I'm sort of beyond that at this point in my life of like proving people that they're wrong, proving Mm -hmm. to people that they're wrong about me. And I don't really like want to keep getting into situations where I have to Mm -hmm. prove my value. Like, that's not what I'm about. And then finally, the sort of straw that broke the camel's back was this super long investor meeting that I had. It was like three hours and I was just getting like, you know, pulled at the seams from like just getting reamed on all sides because they're doing their due diligence to figure out whether they want to invest in your business or not. And everything that they asked about, about the trajectory of the business and what they wanted, what I wanted to do and who I'd get acquired by and how I wanted to like grow. I just felt so hollow explaining it. I didn't want any of that for, that wasn't why I was getting into the work that I was doing. I wasn't doing it to get to exit. I was doing holisticism to help people. And that wasn't a good enough reason for mm-hmm. venture capitalists. And I get it. That's it. They're right. They were right. That isn't a good enough reason for VC funding. So that was my sort of like final straw moment. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. And yeah, unfortunately it, in a way, I guess that the VC perspective would be that that's not good enough because they want to see, you know, to really understand the psyche of someone who gives money like that is they want to see someone with a gigantic vision. So unless you would have said something like, oh, I want to be, I think you were building software, right? Yeah. Yeah, I want to be the back end for all wellness practitioners in the entire United States, you know, within five years, then that's not something they that, you know, they resonate with. And I think mm-hmm. when, when we look to sort of the meta level of what's going on with tech and sort of now, now that we've talked about VC and sort of how it works, it's, it's really, I think it explains in a big part why certain things are the way they are when we, when we think about tech, when we see what's going on in the tech world, for example. Oh, and by the way, I talked this whole thing about female investors. I talked to a founder recently for my podcast, Business for Optimists, and her name's Rebecca Bastian. Mm-hmm. She, I think, managed to raise the majority, at least, of her first round from female angels and, and also female Amazing. angels of color. Yeah. And she, but she said, she, she goes into it on the podcast and she said it was, it was a piece Hard, of work to get that done. Um, yeah. Yeah. But she wasn't, she wasn't willing to compromise and she, she had already had quite a long standing career in, in a tech business and she worked her way up to VP level. So it's, mm. she had quite a few connections also, but still it's, it's pretty much 
it's pretty much impossible because there's so few, anyone who's not a white guy, basically, in VC. Mm-hmm. And when you think about, well, you know, when you think about the last, let's say, 10 years and the companies we've seen take on big roles in the world, right? Like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Airbnb, Glossier you know, Away, blah, blah, blah. And those are just the consumer-facing companies that we inter- interact with those companies are founded under that ethos. And basically what we're seeing is because there's a lot of pattern matching going on. So the the existing VCs founding a lot of the people who look and are like them or who come through their network. And it's like this whole big deal that you have to have a warm intro. So that means someone, Mm -hmm. someone from their circle recommended you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Basically when you're a founder and you know, no one, the first thing you need to do is build relationships with the people who might eventually get you into that circle, which is like the biggest BS I've ever heard. Because if your job is to give money to really good ideas, then the good ideas are not going to be... Coming. They're not just from your friend group. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And when you think about... So basically what that means is that the... Because I think sometimes when, you know, now we've talked about finance stuff for basically 40 minutes and I can, I know. See, <laughs> I can see, you know, someone listening to this podcast being like, okay, like, how does it matter? Like, why, why the right. fuck would I care about this? And you need to care because it, it essentially what these people do is they have a vision for what the world is going to look like in the next 10, 15, 20 years. And it's a very small group of people building this world. And it's a very homogenous group of people building this world, Mm -hmm. which is why we see so few things for, you know, a female audience and it's called femtech and it's about period. It's about infuriates me. (laughs) Infuriates me. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that's, that's just one slice of it. Right. Or that, you know, there was this app. Imagine this, you build an app that tells people how to walk home or, you know, how to, how to have the quickest Mm -hmm. path from A to B but it's built by guys. So it doesn't really take into account that maybe some areas of the town aren't so safe for women at night, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's just things like that where it starts, but then really the bigger vision of, of what tech does in our societies and, and the role that we want technology to take, how we relate to it, who it caters to, who it supports, who it excludes. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look at algorithms and racism, for instance, and there's a great book about this called Algorithms of Oppression. Amazing book that, by mm-hmm. Sophia Noble. It's ama- It's awesome. It's very dense, but it's great. Yeah. And that's that's sort of where it gets really relevant because these algorithms are made and trained by people who are mainly white men. And they disadvantage people who are mainly not white men and mostly people of color. And that has huge implications when we think about, you know, also the the criminal system or what happens mm-hmm. when, I think I'm lacking the word, word in English here, but the um, pro- prosecution system, basically. Yeah. And there's a lot of mismatches going on. There's also this whole question about, you know, there's also someone I recently talked to for the podcast who said, She's under the impression um, that a lot of the, these young founders are basically building businesses that are outsourcing their moms. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. Drivers, grocery delivery, you know, a lot of things like that. But yeah. really the question is, you know, how, what is it like for those people also working in tech businesses? We've heard, you know, a lot of stories you know from away there was a bit of a shit show around that recently right of course the ongoing uber question right i was gonna say uber and driver and employee or are they contractors are they freelancers Mm -hmm. and you know for instance here in europe with grocery delivery businesses the the riders they're known to be you know overworked and majorly underpaid and that's part of the business model i also through the fellowship i talked to one vc who saw a deal like that on a you know, grocery, you know, food delivery startup. And he, he said he passed because he saw that the numbers were not going to work out for the people doing the actual legwork. Like it was mm. super obvious. So right. then I kind of wonder like, what about everyone else? Why are we, right? And this is where it gets political and where it gets really relevant to all of us is sort of, do we want to, is that the future we want? Is that mm-hmm. sort of how we want things to go and where, because as consumers, I think there's also, I feel sometimes we feel a lot of overwhelm around making the right choice, right? If you if you want to be a good consumer, it's it's, it's bordering on possible to make 
you know, because you have so many choices to make every day. But really, the question is, are those the businesses we want to support when it's pretty clear that the people who are doing the work aren't going to get mm-hmm. a fair share of the pay? Of course, you can tip, but there are people putting money into these businesses and there some of them have already IPO'd and they made billions of this literally yeah. and the people doing the work aren't seeing much of that. Like, I don't, I really don't think that's the future of, and that's where this whole system that we talked about at the beginning of this podcast is, is actually really re- relevant because that's what sort of drives and th- that's what the financial incentives are behind companies like that. But that's so you sum, summarize that so beautifully. And that is, yeah. yeah. And, and I think that we've been really blunt about VC and we unfortunately are at the near nearing up the end of our time, mm-hmm. but this isn't to say that like you shouldn't raise money if you have this type of business. And I think there are actually so many lifestyle businesses, quote unquote lifestyle businesses, that can be venture backable businesses. Mm-hmm. And a question that you can ask yourself, you know, now that you know the, the difference and the distinction between the two is, all right, if I have this business, this idea, what if I invested a hundred million dollars into it? What would I do? <laughs> what would happen? How would I expand this? What, how would I grow it? How would I make it even cooler? And that typically is what a VC business is, right? It's like, all right, if we had this amazing unlimited technology, if we had this incredible piece of equipment, if we had, you know, hundreds of thousands of people across the world who are working on this problem together and they were able to do that in the blink of an eye, what would, how would we solve it? And I think we we can learn from VC to begin thinking like that in our mm-hmm. own realms, in the realms that that venture capitalists, especially white, male, cis, hetero VCs are not thinking of. Mm-hmm. And I think part of playing the game also is acknowledging that that we have a lot of power, you know, as people who are not maybe identifying as white, cis, hetero men. <laughs> we have a lot of purchasing power. We have a lot mm-hmm. of power in this space because we spend money. And if you can remember that and think about that and focus on who you're helping and see that that's how they see value in people, that will help you kind of like mm, relate, I guess, to VCs and help them see your vision in a language that they potentially understand, which is a little gross, but also it's like we have to translate, we have to communicate with people with where they're at, even if we Mm -hmm. don't exactly like where they're at. Yeah, for sure. And I think there's, as a, as a consumer, certainly you have, you can always write to a company, right? And be like, Hey, so what about this thing? Right. And if more of us do it, that's, that's one way to approach it. I think what really, I want to share one last anecdote from this sort of world of VC that I was in for a while was, you know, in the beginning of the fellowship, there was somebody who was quite successful in their work in Europe talked and they said, he said something that was just sort of mind-blowing to me at the time because they said, you know, we created $2 billion. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, how do you create, right? Because when you think in the context of the conversations that, you know, you sometimes have with service, service-based businesses or even small-scale businesses, you're like, oh, can I charge this much? Or like, am I, am I being greedy if I, you know, want uh-huh. that? Well, <laughs> there are people who operate on a totally different level and they talk about creating 2 billion euros or $2 billion. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you know, at that scale, I don't right. think it matters that much. <laughs> and it, it is as if they conjured, you know, so for your audience, as if they, if they conjured that money sort of out of thin air and that's how they deal with it, right? It's like, oh yeah, we're going to create money. Mm. And hearing that sort of changed my attitude to it a little bit because you, when you get to the point that you can resource yourself as an entrepreneur and you can invest in other people who maybe do business in a way where you feel it matches your values or where they you know where you can support a bootstrap business with a little bit of cash right to make their life a little bit easier you can also create value in a way where it's maybe not conjuring you know two billion out of thin air but you can really sort of pass on the baton to people who are working alongside your values. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And that's something where, you know, when you look at what's going on in this industry, there's there's a little bit of change happening, right? There's um, Join Republic in mm. the US, not giving investment advice here, but just if you want to research it, there are now ways to become a startup investor, you know, as an individual, as a consumer, yeah. you can really get a bit more active in this and not just 
feel like, you know, there are these people that are sort of working in this arcane world that we don't have access to. And that's like really sort of behind the curtain, as you were saying in the beginning, there are ways to do this as an individual with a small business, right? Once you, once you feel like you're comfortable enough that you have a little bit of cash to spare and it doesn't need to be a million, right? You can, you can start doing this at a fairly you can invest $5,000, $10,000, and that can be monumental for a lifestyle business and yeah. another lifestyle business. Exactly. And and that's really cool. Yeah. Well, this was so wonderful. We might have to have you on for part two to answer questions because I feel like people uh, would, will, will, will want to ask. Yeah, that would be really yeah. fun. So yeah, send us your questions, crew, for Johanna, and we'll <laughs> we'll talk about VC and investment and other... We should talk about shared earnings agreements and some other yeah, things that, that people can fun. use. Would, yeah, alternative fun. pathways to investment. Yeah. But definitely. how can people find you? People, okay, so people can find me not on Instagram. <laughs> so the funny thing is also if you want to send questions, I'm doing an Instagram, a PhD on Instagram, literally yes. um, exploring the relationship with tech and society. So I'm not on Instagram. But you can find me on Twitter under my name, Johanna Rinot. Or you can actually, what I would love the most is if you subscribe to my newsletter, because I love my newsletter. That's my number one marketing tool. Yes. No, and and just a tool to be in touch because it's, I like how it's a bit more, a bit more personal and it doesn't have to be, my thoughts don't have to be condensed in, you know, 200 some characters. I like nuance. So yeah, that's and I can I can give you the link, Michelle, if you want to. Yeah, we'll show. put the links yeah. in the show notes. But yeah, this was so so fun. Thank you Thanks so much, Johanna. Of course. Okay. I hope you loved that. I hope it was interesting. I'm really curious to see and hear what you think. So uh, hit me up on Instagram, DMs, via email, via text, obviously. And I think that's it. Thanks for listening and tuning in always. You guys are the best. We're so, so lucky. Uh, You're so fucking cool. And I hope you have a beautiful rest of your day. I'll see you on the internet. Bye.